You are listening to the Regent College Podcast. Hello, I'm Nick Corbin. And I'm Claire Perini. And welcome back to the Regent College Podcast. If you've been listening to the Regent College Podcast for a while, you'll know that we often have lots of conversations around global Christianity and world Christianity and how we understand the church and the uh, and culture and the gospel relationship to culture and all of those kinds of things. So if you're a fan then you'll of the podcast, you'll know that we have these conversations. But today those categories are just going to be busted, you know, wide open again <laughs> uh, as we have a conversation with Dr. Vince Bantu. As we and he he's talking to us about the fact that Christianity has always been a religion that is global. So he's his research is looking at the early church. So, you know, sort of um, the first couple of hundred years of the church and how we sort of before then we start to see schisms and splits and all of that, but actually how Christianity had been more global. We, we sometimes think of global Christianity just now, that it's now a global, you know, religion, but actually he's, he's saying, no, it, it's actually always been that. So he just um, kind of paints this picture of how we understand Christianity in that context and then sort of how did that happen and how did we come to how did we come to sort of see Christianity as we do now we talk about syncretism of course because no conversation about global Christianity right. is complete without it yeah. um, it was a great conversation yeah I mean it was helpful because we need to shed light on hit the historical global church and also how we've failed in a lot of ways mm as as the church in translating the gospel into mm-hmm. into different different cultures and mm-hmm. allowing for the gospel to take root in different cultures yep so um, if you haven't if you haven't come across dr bantu before he joined the the faculty at fuller theological seminary as an assistant professor of church history and black church studies in 2019 he teaches primarily primarily in their houston campus um, he's also then a liaison to the william e panel center for black church studies and he networks with black churches and pastors and students. He's also had years of pastoral experience in African-American and Asian-American and Hispanic churches, as well as extensive involvement in multicultural urban communities. Yeah, and the, and the book that we were sort of focusing on, our conversation on, is called A Multitude of All Peoples Engaging, Engaging Ancient Christianity's Global Identity, and that came out last year. So we hope you uh, enjoy our conversation with Dr. Vince Banton. Dr. Bantu, welcome to the Region College Podcast. It's great to have you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's great to be here. We're so looking forward to this conversation. Nick, Nick is the Nick is the mastermind behind all these kind of great questions, <laughs> and um, I'm I'm excited for us to delve into some of these these things. Um, do you want to? Why don't we sort of begin? We often try and begin with a bit of a kind of an introduction, kind of question, just get a bit of a sense of who you are. Do you want to tell us just a little bit about your faith journey? And then how your sort of your Christian identity seemed to come into conflict with your own cultural identity. Do you want to just talk to us a little bit about that? Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So I, um, you know, I was born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, mm. the lower 48, um, right in the middle. And uh, yeah, I, um, uh, you know, I grew up in a really, uh, I mean, St. Louis, if anybody, I know folks in Vancouver might not be as familiar with it, but, um, in, in the U S it's like, um, I mean, racial segregation is just an issue everywhere. Um, but St. Louis is maybe one of the most just, uh, severely and, and consistently and dramatically segregated cities in the, in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, there's literally a street that cuts the whole city in half. Uh, like everything on this side is black, everything on this side is white. And, and there's also a parallel with some extremely drastic, uh, uh, socioeconomic differences right. Um, and so I grew up, you know, just kind of right, right near that line. And, uh, and so I was always thinking about racial and cultural differences. And, you know, I grew up in a biracial household, you know, my mom is white, my dad is black. And so I was always thinking about, uh, just, you know, race and culture and, and, uh, and I would see and the differences from one side of that line and the other. And I actually grew up, I got saved at a young age. Uh, my mom was a believer and I, you know, shared the gospel with me and, uh, and we went to a white evangelical church that was right on the other side of the line. So it was like miles from my house. Um, but it, but it may as well have been in a different planet, Yeah, very, very different cultural context. And so, yeah. um, and so I, that was the, that was my context for, 
for discipleship and for the gospel and for Christianity. Uh, and in my neighborhood, it was, you know, kind of an urban rough kind of neighborhood and there wasn't really anybody that was going to church. Uh, so just in mm-hmm. my little world, uh, kind of my little micro world, um, the only Christians I knew were white, um, and were upper class. And, uh, and then, so I, I just associated, well, that's what, that's what Christian is. That's what Christianity is. That's who Christians are. And that's what it looks like to follow Jesus. And I didn't see anybody that looked or sounded like, or, or kind of had the culture that I came from and identified with in my actual home, uh, community. And so I always felt that kind of tension growing. Mm -hmm. And and sometimes I would even, and I, but again, I was, I got saved when I was seven, seven years old I, I got baptized when I was 10 and I you know was you know passing out tracks in my <laughs> in my neighborhood and I would try to get people to come to come to my church and and you're you know, the coolest kid in school right yeah was it was you're the cool you're the coolest kid in school handing out your tracts and everything just <laughs> oh oh no no I was the lamest kid in school I was the I was the buzzkill Jesus freak like <laughs> yeah my other friends are trying to get high and I'd be like to, trying to evangelize to them like while they're high and they'd be yeah. like, come on, Vince, like you're messing up our fun. <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's so funny. Um yeah, thanks, thanks for giving that that little snapshot. Wait, sorry, were you I think I interrupted you. Were you were you gonna say anything more about that? Oh, oh no. Well, actually I guess the last thing I'll say is yeah, just I when I would try to invite people to church, um, they would not feel connected. Uh or you know, it would it would be again, it was a cultural uh, you know, gap. And so I, I realized that, um, and I kind of sensed that, but I guess I just kind of like was thinking, well, yeah, but I don't really connect to it either, but this is what we have to do. This is what you have. Mm. This is where you have to connect. And, and again, there were, there was no alternative. There was no, in my neighborhood, there were no churches that where you, you know, people again, who looked and kind of acted like, and had that kind of urban hood culture, you know, would be reflected, but as believers, as followers of Jesus. So there was in the sense was that there was no other option. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I have a strong, like real strong connection with and passion for people who come from cultural contexts where, you know, they feel that their cultural identity is somehow uh, at odds with, you know, Christianity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks. That's really helpful um, to hear your story. I, w- I wonder because of that, your experience, and I know for many others, that's their experience too of this stumbling block of encountering kind of a Western white man's religion is at being Christianity. And so my question is, is it a, a Western white man's religion? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a great question. I mean, I, I definitely thought it was, you know, growing up, I mean, I, I, I very much, you know, you know, thought that it was, and, uh, you know, I ended up, you know, I felt called a ministry, uh, in high school. And so I ended up going to Christian college, you know, uh, I mean, we, you know, region, we know, you know, that, that context and it was yeah. a predominantly white Christian college. My, you know, I was a theology Bible major and, and all of my professors were white men, all the books, books that we were reading, you know, were like predominantly from white men. Um, you know, most of the, or like, you know, the school was predominantly white. So I just was, you know, uh, you know, of course I was, I was aware that there were Christians in the world that were not white. Um, but it just felt like everyone who is looked to as an authority, uh, mm-hmm terms of like theologians or, you know, uh, biblical scholars or, uh, or mm. national leaders, uh, or, or leaders of, you know, Christian colleges and seminaries were all white men. And so, so even though, even though by the college time I was aware that, you know, there were people, you know, around the world who, uh, were Christians. And in fact, Christianity is even numbers wise is bigger Yeah, yeah. in Africa and Latin America and Asia that I still had this sense. Uh, and again, it was really, part of how uh how we learn and how we even tell the story mm-hmm. of christian history that that it, that it really it comes from uh western white people uh and and that you know those people are kind of usually you know i mean just to put it bluntly they usually know the bible better than everybody else they know theology right. better than everybody else so everybody should to them to get, you know, their theology and their practices of Christian worship. And so, again, even though the gospel is growing all over the world, it's a common practice for people to see Western or white people as like, again, as the experts. And so mm. to them as the as the as, as the experts and also as the source uh, for again, for people who aren't believers, especially um, in non-Western contexts, uh, 
which is the majority of the world, um, you know, uh, that, 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 that dynamic is very visible. And so there's this, you know, there's this sense in the non-Western world that Christianity came from the West. Mm -hmm. Uh, If it's being practiced broadly, it came from the West. Uh Non-believers in that context will still have this sense of that's not for us. That's not from our people. That's that colonists. So therefore it's antithetical to our identity. In fact, can see their own uh, kindred who are Christians as almost like a sellout or almost like you, you've abandoned your, your people, you've abandoned your, your ancestry and your nation and your culture, mm. like a Westerner, you become white, you become an American, whatever the adjective becomes, it's mm. Christianity is associated with foreignness with mm. something that's not, you know, from us. So it's, you know, it's really understandable why people see it that way. Mm-hmm. But it is going back to the questions that it's not uh, Christianity is not a Western religion. And that's why I'm so really interested in the non-Western church history that's in the early church. Because yeah. when you look at, again, when you look at the way the gospel is growing all over the world today, um, as I was, as I, because of the dynamics and the dilemmas I was just saying, uh, I think it's really important to emphasize that not only is Christianity global now, but it's always been global. And that Christianity has always been among African and Asian and Middle Eastern mm. other people groups. And and so it didn't, you know, Christianity never became global, mm. uh, but it's always been global from mm-hmm. the beginning. Yeah, that's really interesting because we do, we do sort of talk about this shift in the center of gravity in the last kind of hundred years, you know, so where which is it's true in the sense of terms of i guess numbers or is it and then so but you're saying maybe that's not it's not a helpful way for us to think that you know now christianity is global actually it's always been global that's right that's right um and and, and you know especially uh hmm. especially when we you know I think part of the the challenge of that or part part of the yeah reasons I guess part of the ways that 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 way of thinking about it isn't as helpful is because we it's, it's also about who we count as a Christian right right I mean uh, one thing that I thought was interesting a few years ago when there was uh, unfortunately a really tragic event where there were many uh, Egyptian Christians who were martyrs for the faith uh, who were killed uh, in in Libya uh, just several years ago because they're Christians on a beach in Libya were were murdered mm-hmm. by, um, you know by extremists. Uh, there were so many people, Christians around the world, who were hailing these people as as martyrs for the faith, and 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 there's situations like this all over, you know, uh, different parts of the world, um, where this kind of things unfortunately are happening. But one thing I thought was interesting was that as you know, many Protestant or evangelical or Pentecostal uh, other you know Christians around the world were hailing these people as martyrs and celebrating their faith. Uh, I was wondering, I wonder how many of us realize though that these are Coptic Orthodox Christians. Mm. And many times people from those faith traditions are seen as, well, that, that's not real Christianity. And right. my my kind of actual really main historical interest is in where the split happened between yeah. many of the churches in Africa, the early churches, the, the most ancient churches in Africa and on the Asian continent. They had a different Christology and they had a different mm. theology and confession that actually looked to the dominant church in Europe persecuting them uh, uh, extremely and and therefore limiting their ability to be missional across those different continents. And so mm. that's when kind of the Western church kind of tried to take the reins of Christianity and say that, again, we practice it best. And so that's why the Western church history was seen as the center of gravity or seen as the center, but it was never really the center, but it kind yeah. of assumed that position for themselves. Right. And, and so now when we talk about Christianity spreading, oftentimes we do a similar thing where it's like a certain version of Christianity. Like we, we you know, we act like that there, you know, if there was an, uh, another denomination or another, you know, kind of tradition of Christianity that that didn't really count until there was our version of Christianity. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But again, if we're looking at other traditions, uh, again, the, there's the gospel has always been alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And. That's that's why it's so helpful, I think, for us to reframe and to look at historically how Christianity has moved in different cultural contexts. And so for those of us maybe who aren't familiar with early church history, can you just talk about, because you kind of touched on it, there were some division Mm, and then a Mm. dominant thought came in, um, in the early church that kind of suppressed these other Christians, can you talk about that divide and and what was going on there? And then what are, what's the geography as well? Mm. Yeah, definitely. Like, you know, I think this is such a thing. The, the more I study the history, it actually, but as a believer, it just makes me really marvel at God's providence and how yeah. his plan of salvation was so perfect. Because 
uh, I mean, just the fact that God chose the Hebrews as his, as his chosen people through whom the gospel would spread. And then God took on flesh as a Hebrew man, uh, in the first century in, in the, you know, Roman Palestine, uh, which was, you know, in the known world was really the center of mm-hmm. the known world is right at the intersection at the crossroads of what the continents that we would later call Asia, Europe, and Africa, right? Mm-hmm. At the intersection. Mm-hmm. And again, not only Jesus, now of course, salvation comes through Jesus, but the early church, uh, like in the old Testament were the, were the Hebrews. And so God chose this nation to be the bearers of his gospel message. And it went from that center of gravity into every part of the known world. It just really is a picture of how God truly, as it says in his word in Acts 10, shows no favoritism for any people. But there was mm-hmm. there was no sense of like, uh, and, and, you know, again, even though it started in, in among the Hebrews, the New Testament uh, takes great pain to say that that does not make the Hebrews special or that mm-hmm. God loves them more. And even in the Old Testament, that's already a, a message that's clear. And so it goes out into the Gentiles, into the, you know, but, but through diaspora, the Hebrews had already been spread almost into every nation on earth. And that's why in Acts 2, the Hebrews all gathered it in for Pentecost, but they were Hebrews of every color and Hebrews from uh, from Europe, from Africa, mm. from uh, all parts of Asia. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they went out from there and can, and then he, Hebrew African Christians and Hebrew Asian Christians and Hebrew European Christians then spread the gospel to their own people who were non-Hebrew. And then you had European Gentile Christians, African Gentile Christians, mm. Asian Gentile Christians, and the gospel just went out in every direction. And for the first few centuries of Christianity, there was no, there was no sense of like one group or one culture being dominant in the church. Mm. Christians, in, again, talking about how the Hebrews went out, they, that included India. There were Jewish Indian people mm-hmm. spread the gospel, and Thomas may even be, have been the one yeah. who, there, but whether or not Thomas literally went to India, there were clearly Jewish Christ, Jewish Indians in southwestern India even before the time of Christianity. And we know for a fact that by the fourth and fifth centuries, there were Christian communities in India, mm-hmm. and then along the Silk Road in Asia, in the Persian Empire, uh, in in Ethiopia, in Nubia, uh, in North Africa, in Europe, all over the world, there were Christians, and there was no majority. But beginning in the fourth century, when the Roman Empire began to represent Christianity as the Roman religion, mm-hmm. that then made the situation very hard for Christians in other parts of the world that were not Roman. Um, and so, you know, that's what, especially in the Persian Empire, because that was Rome's enemy. And it was actually because the Roman Empire presented itself as this Christian nation or this mm-hmm. empire, this is really the beginning of Christian religious nationalism, um, that that actually led to the persecution of Christians in Persia, who had been, um, it's interesting that actually in Persia, in the one in 200s, it was actually the Christians there actually had it better. Uh, we're talking mm-hmm. Afghanistan, Iraq, and Pakistan, like mm-hmm. Christians in that part of the world actually were living more freely. And it was actually in Europe that the Christians were having a harder time in the mm-hmm. one and two hundreds uh, because of the Roman Empire persecuting Christians. Right. But fourth century, that situation flipped as and, and and the Roman Empire began to increasingly try to kind of present itself as the as like you know God's chosen nation. Yeah. In the world. And they already had a sense of like being, again, the civilizing force in the world for the barbarians. Right. But then when you mix Christianity with that, that's when you had this birth of Christian nationalism. And that all came to a head in the year 451 with the Council of Chalcedon. Um, The Council of Chalcedon was a theological council that tried to find a way to talk about the humanity and the divinity of Jesus, the full humanity and divinity of Jesus, but in a certain way that was not agreeable to many, the majority of the Christians in Africa and in Asia. Mm. But after that, the Roman church basically said, well, you guys are heretics. And they said it back. They only equally kind of (laughs) anathematized or, you know, excommunicated each other. But the Roman empire with its army and with its, uh, and with its resources began to go into the the middle East and to churches, into the, uh, into the Egyptian churches and, and Syrian churches and tried to force their particular doctrine and their particular theology in those parts of the world. And that created a bitter tension between the churches of Africa and Asia and the dominant church of Europe. And then it was like, a perfect storm because mm. you into the 600s the rise of islam happens mm-hmm. in, in in that same part of the world and the muslims took over the middle east and egypt and north africa the very places where had been being persecuted for 200 years before that by actually the roman church and so 
now the Christians in that part of the world became double minorities uh, in the sense right. that they had been persecuted and excommunicated by the European church. And now they were living under Islamic rule. It's interesting that when the Muslims took over, some Christians actually prefer the Muslim rulers over the, the Romans because mm, right. they actually were more free to operate because the Muslims knew that there was this tension between the Christians of Africa and Asia and, and those of Europe. But mm. eventually, um, you know, Muslim persecution of Christians in that part of the world started to increase. But it's interesting, and this is like talking in the 10th and 11th centuries now, but it's interesting that a lot of that also was correlated to the Crusades uh, because as Europeans started to try to launch Crusades in the Middle East, that again made Muslim rulers in that part of the world distrust the Christians in that world in the Middle East and Africa, even though there had been a tension and a schism between those Christians and the European Christians for half a millennium at that point. But that also just yeah. diminished the missional impact of African and Asian Christians throughout the world um, was, again, I would say the more that the Western and European, later European world tried to present itself as this kind of like global police or this guardian of the Christian tradition and this like the, you know, or to use Pope Nicholas in the 15th century's words, because that's when it goes into transatlantic slave trade and colonialism around the world, right. that they saw themselves as the key bearers of the kingdom of Jesus on this earth, that the more that Western and European powers have done that uh, and use Christianity to support their own aims, the more it has made things difficult for Christians of color around the world, uh, especially if they live in minority mm. contexts. Um, and so anyway, that's, you know, that's just a little brief uh, 2000 year. Oh man, years. this is like, like <laughs> full on like brain explosion. It's yeah. Thanks yeah. so much. That was yeah. You just explained a lot of history very clearly in a very short period of time. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Vince. Vince, I just can you just touch on a little bit more of the specifically the controversy between the Monophysite and the Chalcedonian Christians because I think that's really significant here, uh, and specifically I think it was Ethiopia. And, and you maybe talked about this in your book, there was a linguistic and a language barrier there that was mm. that caused difficulty, but really speaks to a lot of how we do translation and contextualization in cultures. So can you talk about that and then also maybe talk about the significance of that too? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, so going back, like you said, going back to the moment, I mean, we I think uh, in the church, we really need to start talking more about this council and uh, the Council of Chalcedon. A lot of us maybe know about the Council of Nicaea or, you know, others and certainly Protestants. We know about the Council of Trent, but the Council of Chalcedon was very um, efficacious, especially for global Christianity. We're talking about world Christianity because, again, that was that. I mean, we're talking about schisms. I mean, really, in the history of the global church. I would say there's probably been three major schisms and many of us know about the, you know, the European Protestant Reformation uh, from the European Catholic Church. And I say European because there was actually African reform movements even before the European. Mm. That's another story. Um, but that, you know, and then even before that, we know about the East West schism of Europe where the Eastern European and the Western European Church is splitting at Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism in the 11th century. But even before that, there's another schism that was just as kind of it maybe even more kind of monumental the Council of Chalcedon, where there was that schism between the churches of the Middle East and Africa splitting, uh, and you know, with the church of the dominant European context. And the issue uh, at the Council of Chalcedon was whether or not um, the language should be used of two natures when you talk about Jesus. Yeah. You know, is uh you know you know everybody everybody this, this is why I say you know even going to today the comment I made earlier about you know uh, other some of these orthodox traditions our brothers and sisters in Christ because everybody believes that G, you know Orient the so called Oriental Orthodox or Eastern Orthodox Catholic you know Protestant like everybody believes that Jesus is the way truth and life and everybody believes in the Trinity and everybody believes that Jesus is fully God and fully human that's not the issue but oftentimes in in the four hundreds and even to today. People think that that's the issue, that uh, whether mm. Jesus is fully God or fully God. That is not the issue. But so often, even in modern Western like uh, church history textbooks, people will still say the issue is whether or not Jesus is fully God and fully human. That is not the issue. That was not the issue. Everybody agreed that Jesus is fully God and fully human. The issue was what wording and what language we use to right. describe 
that reality. And right. coming to church in the Roman Empire came up with, and specifically the Bishop of Rome, Leo, came up with, he, in, he kind of invented a way of talking about that that was, you know, it was it, it was kind of coming out of a Roman Hellenistic kind of cultural mm-hmm. and linguistic context. He yeah. said, the best way to understand this is to say that Jesus is one person. He's one hypothesis, but he has two physics. He has two natures, right? One person, two natures. Well, many people in Egypt and, and then later Syria and Armenia um, and Ethiopia, they did not, they didn't like that. That didn't mm. make sense to them because to them that sounded like they that that sounded like Leo and Europeans were saying that there are two different Jesuses. Mm. That's not what they were saying. That's not what you know centuries of Western Christendom has said. Um, but it's also understandable why they would interpret it that way because again, the the linguistic distinction between one person and two natures, one hypothesis with two physics, that's a very kind of Greek Roman. Mm-hmm of thinking about it that does not necessarily translate into other contexts. Now, to be fair, many of, in Egypt and Syria, many of the earliest theologians who argued against that were actually Greek speakers themselves. Mm. But they were they were in contexts that were very multilingual, where people spoke e- Greek, but also Egyptian, or Greek, but also Syrian, and that those concepts did not translate into those languages as much. And especially, you mentioned Ethiopia. As Ethiopia enters into this conflict much later, we find out that in their language, there is no two different words for person and nature. There's no way to distinguish those things. So that's why from the African and the Asian side, you saw this argument where they were saying that you guys have turned the Trinity into a quaternity or you've made three mm-hmm. four. Now, again, that's not what the Europeans were doing, but they also in turn misunderstood what the African and the Asian uh, theologians were saying. Mm-hmm. They said, and again, you can still see this Western mischaracterization of African and Asian ancient Christology, even to this day, but they felt that they were denying that Jesus was fully human when they, so as you mentioned, the term they actually use is miaphysite. Uh, most of these believers consider monophysite more of a pejorative term, but they use miaphysite, which also means one nature, but it's uh, in, in the kind of modern understanding, it's less of a pejorative and it speaks to the unitedness of his natures that they would say that Jesus after the incarnation was, uh, and uh, that Jesus's humanity and divinity were merged into one nature. So again, mm-hmm. arguing that Jesus is fully God and fully human, but they're saying after the incarnation that Jesus's humanity and divinity were merged into one nature, into one physics. And that them was more faithful than scripture, but they have never denied that Jesus is fully human. But even to this day, Western, many Western Christians say that these Christians, so-called Oriental Orthodox, Coptic, Syrian, uh, Ethiopian Orthodox, Armenian Orthodox churches will still say that they don't really believe or they minimize Jesus' humanity. And that's, that's, that's mm. at all. Sorry to interrupt this wonderful conversation, but Claire Perini has something really important she'd like to share with you. Thanks, Nick. I do have something very important to say. Firstly, it's to say thank you to the number of people who listen to the podcast and they they like the podcast so much that they send us emails to let us know or little donations of cashola. Mm. So um, so thank you for those who are who have been supporting the podcast. But if you've been listening to the podcast and you've been thinking, oh, I wonder how Nick gets paid. <laughs> no. <laughs> Cut that that out. (laughs) (laughs) So if you've been listening to the podcast and you've appreciated some of the conversations that we've had, we would love you to to let Regent know by sending us an email or sending us a donation. And you can do that on the Regent College website if you go to rgnt.net forward slash give. That's R-G-N-T dot net forward slash give. What a great... American, North American accent. Or like some sort of weird <laughs> hybrid accent. Yeah. Uh, wonderful. And if you do give a donation, would you please tell them the podcast sent you? Thanks for listening and for your support. We hope you enjoy the rest of our conversation. Can you, can you talk to us a little bit about, we often talk about um, uh, African Christianity more in the sort of modern sense, like maybe in the last 100, 200 years maybe. Um, but do you want and you sort of touched on this even when you just you kind of threw in the whole there was an African Reformation, kind of, you know, just throw that little bomb there. But do you want to talk, why, talk to us a little bit about ancient African Christianity um, and, and maybe why it was difficult for the gospel to flourish and sort of in Africa, in the kind of in ancient African time. And you sort of talked a little bit about that now, but do you want to talk a bit more about that side of things? 
Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, yeah. Cause I, you know, I would say that, you know, even despite um, the ways in which these African Christians were again, after that, after that schism, uh, the, the Egyptian church uh, held strong to their, their faith uh, and this idea that, that it's better to talk about Jesus as one nature um, that the uh, actually further South of Egypt, uh, Nubia and Ethiopia were uh, also the two of the kind of the other major African kingdoms in Africa in the fifth and sixth centuries. Um, so I actually would say that Christianity did flourish um, right. in Africa um, and, and was very, because again, all across Africa, despite, despite um, the ways in which the European church was persecuting the church. In fact, yeah. uh, when Nubia became a Christian nation, the way it happened was actually uh, in the midst of that whole tension that, that in the hundreds mm. there was a Roman emperor named Justinian who he was trying really hard to enforce the Chalcedonian or the two nature Christology mm. that in Western Christendom for, you know, most of its history, he was trying really hard to enforce that. And he actually tried to send missionaries into Nubia uh, uh, in modern Sudan to Christianize them, but specifically to make them Chalcedonian Christians. Mm. The Nubians actually connected with Egypt. And, and when Nubia became a Christian nation in the 500s, they embraced Christianity, but they specifically embraced the Egyptian version of Christianity, the one nature Christianity. Uh -huh. It was a Christian nation for a thousand years. Um, and, and, it, and it remained that way. And they rejected the Roman Christianity and embraced the Egyptian Christianity. Uh, and yeah. as well, Ethiopia had already been a Christian nation since the 300s, and they were also connected to, to Egypt as well. So really all of, almost all of kind of the urbanized civilizations of Africa uh, the continent we now call Africa were all Christian in like we're dominantly Christian um, mm -hmm. that but the, the uh, but the but the gospel also was spreading and this is actually an area of research that I'm really currently working on and becoming more interested in is the degree to which Christianity actually spread from you know Egypt Nubia Ethiopia and into other parts of Africa there's actually really fascinating evidence that Christianity reached all the way to the gold coast of West Africa uh, long before Europeans ever even came right. and across Central Africa. And um, and again, it makes sense if as other African nations developed later in the seven, eight, nine hundreds in Central West and South Africa, that they did so through trade and travel with the with Eastern African nations, which were older and more ancient and were Christian. Uh, so it makes all the sense in the world. But yeah. then the thing about what you asked about is not only uh, uh, not only did that happen, but also there were reform movements that were starting. Yeah. Because uh, because, again, I mean, you know, the uh, I mean, I'm you know, I'm, I'm I don't I don't I don't necessarily feel and feel um, uh, like devoted to the word Protestant. But I, I just call myself a Christian or I actually I like to use the, the Ethiopian word Nasrawi for myself. Mm. But, but I, I you know, I have more. Let's say I, I theologically I have more. Uh, opinions or inclinations that would be more in line with with Protestants, so to speak. And so um, and so many of those, again, you know, even but even before Martin Luther started challenging and asking questions of the Catholic Church in Europe, there were actually Africans who were doing the same thing because mm -hmm. there, most of that Christianity that was spreading across Africa was Orthodox, was part of the Orthodox traditions. Uh, but there was a, specifically there was a, um, a monk named Estefanos who lived in the 13 and 1400s and he actually started a um, a resistance movement. Actually, he was he was eventually martyred and killed for his. Mm. He was challenging the the king of Ethiopia, which was again a Christian nation, um, and this was in his heyday. This was like kind of the uh, one of the pinnacles of Ethiopian power in the Horn of Africa in the 1300s and 1400s. And he was actually challenging uh, things like the king's involvement uh, in you know church matters or even the practice of bowing to the king. He was. Mm. The high veneration of Mary that was happening in the church. He was challenging placing even church teaching and authority on the same level as scripture. And so many of the same things that Luther challenged as right. Stephanos was already challenging uh, in the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. And he's still seen as a heretic actually to this day uh, oh. in, in Ethiopian Orthodoxy. But uh, among many of the, so, again, so-called Protestants, or actually they call themselves Pente, uh, again, Christians who are not part of the Orthodox Church in Ethiopia, he's actually seen as a saint and as a as a well, they don't do saints, but he's seen yeah. as a person. And he's yeah. Not um, yeah. Just stories in history that I have never yeah. heard of, names mm -hmm. I've never heard of. Mm -hmm. Vince, why do you think that is? Why why in our the narratives that we tell ourselves, the people that we recognize, like why do we go specifically to the same people? And why not these these other uh, people from Nubia and from Ethiopia and different people you're talking about? Like, why is that not a part of our our, our learning mm. experience? 
I mean, yeah, I think I think unfortunately uh, the answer is racism and the answer is, you know, uh, Eurocentricity uh, and, and white supremacy. The idea, you know, the fact that, again, like we said, like for me, I mean, I'm I'm still learning like all these new things like mm. time. Um, yeah, I mean, and 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 I'm always like, why didn't I hear about this? Like when I first started learning about this stuff, um, you know, when I was in seminary, I, my first thought was, why didn't I hear about this? Like I, I studied theology and I've been a believer, you know, but but I think that's really what it is. Again, going back to um, going back to the four the 451 schism that the European church felt that their particular way of, 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 of rhetorically framing what is ultimately a divine mystery that Mm -hmm. our language and categories can fully encapsulate the fact that took on flesh and that Jesus was fully God and fully human. uh, How can any of our wording fully grasp the Mm -hmm. mystery? Of course, we have to be faithful to that being true and, and being the reality uh, and the way, truth, and life. But none of our wording can fully grasp that. Yeah. And it's really an arrogance to say, no, 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 you have to talk about it this way in particular, like one person, two natures, what, you know, and right. other way of doing it works. But we still have that going on even to this day, again, to where we have a lot of direct, but even I would say more indirect ways of, 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 of really promoting the message that Western or white uh, Christians are are really the the authorities in church again i think that when we uh when we give out i mean you know i'm a professor right and uh in, in academic context in seminaries and christian colleges when when most of our uh you know authorities are are white men when in in the pulpit if everyone we're quoting or everyone who's really pouring into our our thought process is white men if if every if every reading or the majority of the in the syllabus are white men. That, those are indirect ways of saying that white men know best and that mm-hmm. these are the people who know the, the gospel the best. And that, again, is something that we, that goes back to 451, where it's like, no, our way is the better. And that's just continuing mm-hmm you know, go forward and go on. Um, and I think that, um, and I think that's, you know, precisely mm. why. it's not to say that Western or, uh, or white Christianity is bad or we need to get away from it or, or anything like that. There's been a lot of great things that have come out of Western theologians and, and mm. Christian context that, that many people can benefit from. But again, like Paul says in second Corinthians, uh, eight, he's saying the goal is not that some are hard pressed and, and others aren't, but that there's equality. Right. And, mm. and, as in first Corinthians 12, the goal is that every part of the body, that there's unity. But it's interesting that he says in, in verse 20, uh, in verses 21 through 25 in first Corinthians 12, that he says that the way to get to unity uh, is actually to place greater emphasis on the parts of the body that have lacked, yeah. while mm-hmm. the presentable parts don't need any special treatment. So, mm-hmm. so there's actually reparations and there. Mm-hmm justice and there is kind of a balancing act that the new testament has in its in its purview that sometimes we miss we want to jump to the unity and the reconciliation and we're all united but sometimes we will do things like but then we don't really believe in it because we'll say that you know like acknowledging injustice or acknowledging inequality in the church today uh that that is a threat to unity no actually from the biblical worldview that's actually the Right. is to yeah. acknowledge these things and to to uh place emphasis and resources um on you know actually rectifying things but again of course the goal ultimately is unity and mm-hmm. that everyone has a place at the table and there mm-hmm. is we get back to the first three centuries of the church where nobody has a prized position or nobody uh you know uh has any kind of inordinate power in the church but every the gospel is among every people it's mm. not any one culture because it's everywhere and there's equality because again that's the vision we're going towards in Mm -hmm. Revelation 7 where it's every tribe nation and tongue again you know ethnicity and race and culture and language these are eternal factors they're not Mm -hmm. they're not just for now Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. and he intended them and 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 up but in that celestial vision the only person with a prized position is the lamb is the risen lamb is jesus everybody else is around the throne and nobody has nobody has a closer seat (laughs) to jesus Mm -hmm but everybody has equal access. Um, and we have to, I think we have to live that way now. Um, yeah. you know, in yeah. the mm-hmm. Oh man. So good. Yeah, um, thanks, well, thanks. yeah. Th- and just thinking about that passage in, in one Corinthians, there's like, the, the assumption is diversity. Like the body is like a body doesn't have all the, you know, like it's kind of, it, the assumption is not everything's the same. The assumption is no, it's all, it's diverse. It's different. It's, but it's all working together. Like it's mm-hmm. as opposed to assuming there's a uniformity, which we obviously know is not what unity means, but yeah, that's, it's a really, it's a really helpful um, picture. You know, the question that always comes up at least with um, 
maybe in white Christians, white Western Christians' mind, is the <laughs> question of syncretism when we think about Christologies, sort of, and, and emerge and and Christologies that are that are not our not using the same language that we've used or the same categories that we've used or you know whatever. And you and you talk about this. You you show there's a picture in your book that sort of you explain about that. And can you talk to us a little bit about syncretism and then um, how you understand that and why? Um, how do you respond to any kind of the, the kind of the questions about syncretism that, that as they emerge from different Christologies using different languages or different categories for their understanding of Christ? Yeah, that's a great question, and and it is a it is a, a good concern to have, um, mm. you know, because uh, I you know I'm really informed by missiologists like Lamansane uh, mm. about kind of the. Um, the extremes that we want to avoid as believers, um, because, you know, as believers, we, we're, we're, we're Christians. Yes. And, but we're also cultural beings. We're racialized beings. Uh, and all of us have a culture. Uh, all of us have racial, mm. ethnic, cultural identities. And these things are not bad. Uh, these are, this is God intended for diversity. He said, fill the earth and, and spread out. And, and Genesis 10, there was a table of nations. And then even in Genesis 11, when people were being rebellious and trying to speak one language, God said, okay, you don't want to spread out the way I told you to. You're trying to build a tower to heaven. So I'm going to, I'm going to force you to spread out. I'm going to push mm-hmm. you into the diversity that I've made for you. And we see that again, and uh, kind of reflected in Acts 2, where the Holy Spirit falls, everyone yeah. is gathered, but everyone's not speaking Greek or everyone's not speaking Hebrew, but everyone mm-hmm. says everyone heard them in their language and the gospel goes out. And again, in revelation seven, we see that same image again of every nation gathered before the lamb. And so diversity is a part of, of who we are and who we're meant to be. And so, um, so, and that doesn't, that doesn't disappear when we become Christians to the contrary, I would say um, becoming a Christian doesn't, doesn't um, actually only make us it doesn't make us less a member of our of our tribe nation yeah. or it actually makes us more deeply a part of our tribe nation tongue because God's who ordained those diverse identities to exist and yes because of sin they've gotten off track and now we start you know all of us have ancestries that worship the creation instead of the creator and so mm-hmm. we have to watch out for the extreme of syncretism uh and and not um, and not not going uh, according to our culture when our culture is contrary to the scriptures and to the gospel. Uh, and at the same time, we have to avoid the other extreme of extractionism or this idea that we just have to leave our culture and our culture is bad and it's and it's completely, you know, it's completely bad and we have to leave it because that's impossible. Yeah. <laughs> Possible for any human being yeah. to not act culturally. We are all cultural beings. And so, but through Christ and through the Holy Spirit, our culture is sanctified. That's why, you know, in the book I'm talking about, you know, really missions as cultural sanctification that, that God, like, like with all things, God has won that now there is new life through Jesus so that God is redeeming all things. And through his body uh, of Christ, he is redeeming and, and, and renewing all things back to his original plan and purpose. And, and that includes cultural identity. So yeah. for the Christian, what to do with my cultural identity, it's not to, uh, it's certainly not to uh, live in that cultural identity in as far as that cultural identity has gone off uh, or away from God's law and God's mm-hmm. will. And his way, because if we do that syncretism, but at the same time, it's also not to get away from it, because, again, that's impossible, but it's to um, contextualize and to sanctify. You know, I like I like that's how I like to really think of the Jesus's commission. because He said he said uh, all authority on earth, heaven and earth has been given to me. So therefore, as you go, disciple, he's, he's giving like a, a direct imperative. He's saying to disciple or make disciples uh, or to sanctify or disciple. But he's, he says every ethnicity, every culture. So a lot of times we hear the word nation be used there. And I don't know how helpful that is because that's kind uh, of a concept, but the, the, mm, the word is ethnos, right? And mm. ethnicity is a very vibrant, pregnant word and concept. Mm. It refers to groups of people, but it also, ethnicity and culture is also categories. It's systems of thinking and interpreting the world that are shared by different people groups. And, and Jesus is saying, sanctify those things, sanctify those cultures. The, the people, yes, but also the cultural systems, because those things are part of God's, uh, God's, uh, the way in which we bear the image of God, that we are create, we are lowercase C creators. That's the creation mandate. He told us to go out and create, uh, and 
cultivate, fill the earth and to cultivate it. Well, whenever we cultivate something, whenever we put our hands to make something to art, architecture, language systems, uh, you know, whatever they are, they're going to be cultural because we're cultural beings yeah. and part of God's intent for us. And, but, and yes, because of sin, no, that's gotten off, but through redemption of Jesus, we can now live as we can now live into the, into God's image of what he intended for white identity to look like? What did God intend for black identity to look like or Chinese or, or, or Hispanic or whatever identity we have that we have the opportunity to contextualize it. And so mm. that's really where yeah. we living in. And I think that the last thing I'll say about it is that I think that it is a good. Um, and so that means that all Christians need to be wary of both the extremes of, of disparaging our own culture. Right. Yeah, right. We have, to, right. We, have to, we have to not we have to avoid what God was trying to tell Peter in Acts 10 when he said, don't call unclean what I have made clean. So mm-hmm. our cultures have been made clean. They are in, they are a part of the body of Christ. And we can't just look at them as their as their negative or bad. And also, yes, we need to watch out for the extreme of syncretism that we're not that we're not making an idol of our culture or that we're following it in, mm. in um, where it's uh, a contrary to the gospel. But that that question, that lifelong journey that we all need to be on of sanctifying our culture, that's a journey that all of us need to be on. That's what yeah. I want to say is that a lot of times in the Western or white context, usually that question is asked with reference to non-white cultures. Like, well, we got to make sure that they <laughs> don't go too far with right. sizing or that, you know, African or Asian or indigenous people don't go too far when it comes to syncretizing their culture with their faith. And yes, Every culture does need to be wary of that, but white people need to be wary of that too. Mm-hmm. And, and Western mm. to also be asking, are there ways that we are syncretizing our culture? Are there ways in which, and I'm in the U S I know y'all are up there, but mm. are there ways in which we have maybe made yeah. of the American flag, or do we sometimes know the difference between God's kingdom and our national interests? Right. But sometimes mm-hmm. we will syncretize or conflate or act as if totally are one and the same. And we all, and I mean, and also, you know, um, we, cause I have a lot of native uh, indigenous uh, North American and first nations friends who are wrestling with this and really yeah. thinking about how can we, how can we practice and embrace our culture in ways that are biblical and we're going to have to reject some of it, but we're going to, we're going to embrace it. And a lot of times they get pushback from mainly mm-hmm. white Christians saying, mm-hmm. you can't do that. You can't, you can't have a Christian sweat lodge. You can't have a Christian totem pole. You can't have a, you can't do smudging as a form of worship. You can't do that stuff. Um, and even if they're doing it in a Christocentric God honoring way. And, 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 uh, and I think that that is hypocritical when we think about where did the word, where did the name Easter come from? Every year we all say happy Easter. And where did that word come from? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. Uh, that came from a like pagan Anglo-Saxon goddess. Uh, and then it was, so is that syncretism? Yeah. Uh, you know, we all use Christmas reefs and we have Easter bunnies and, and Christmas trees and all mm-hmm. there's so much in Western Christendom where these symbols actually come from pre-Christian European traditional religious imagery. Yeah. When they became Christians, they just kind of mixed those things with Christianity. And we don't, we practice those things without even questioning it. But yeah. then indigenous or African people want to do the same thing. Now all of a sudden yeah. have this heightened concern mm-hmm. about so again, I, we need to watch out for it, but we need to make sure that we're all watching out for it, uh, and also that we're all embracing our culture, mm-hmm. um, and that we're not trying to make those decisions for other people, but trusting that God and the Holy Spirit is guiding believers who are implanted in every nation, tribe, and tongue, who are able, uh, and of course in dialogue, but 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 to make those decisions and to in, with biblical, you know, uh, accuracy and orthodoxy, and also we need to be asking ourselves, uh, our mm-hmm. own our own people. Mm-hmm. You know, are we towing that line as well? Yeah, mm. totally. It's yeah. really helpful, Vince. Yes, so, so helpful. It's, it's funny. It's the definitely the um the other piece where you sometimes see it, I think, in the in the kind of North American and probably I think you could say this in the Australian church too, is something like consumerism is another really great example of the kind of syncretism thing. So the really mm. flashy church with the really mm. flashy everything. Um uh, and somehow that's okay, mm-hmm. but actually, is it okay? You know, mm-hmm. so that sort of that's that's another kind of like kind of on the rubber hits the road kind of. There's lots of there's lots of examples like that, as you say, Vince, mm-hmm. um, of of where we just we don't we don't have our own sort of syncretism in check. We just think it's all fine because we're we're not actually not actually thinking about yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And just a generalization in Western culture coming out of Greek and Hellenistic thought. We, we've created a lot of creeds and confessions and written a lot of things down. And that's kind of how we, we know our faith. Mm. And I wonder, as you study 
you know, uh, mm. Southern cultures, Eastern and history. Is there an equivalent to that? Like, is the, or or is it a lot of times imagery in how mm. you you understand understand your faith? Or are there like also these creeds and confessions that are written down similar to that Hellenistic thought? I, yeah, I think you have. I think you have um, some like examples of correlations. Uh, maybe like an African version of a creed, so to speak, or like a an Asian version of a creed that you de- you definitely do have that. I mean, there were actually, for example, there were actually kind of empire wide um, councils even in Persia in the Persian Empire, even before the Roman Empire. You know, yeah. we are, and, and again, that's another way that we tell church history, and we don't even realize that we're a lot of times telling Western church history. That's why mm. we try to put modifiers in front of everything. That's a little bit of mine, but. <laughs> I, I feel like we need to put ethnic modifiers in front of everything or nothing. We have a tendency to do it when it's like, you know, people of color, but then when it's white, right. we don't put it, it's just normalize. That's, yeah. that's, that's part of the problem, right? right. Uh, we'll say, well, the council of Nicaea was the first church council or it was the first kind of major church council. And I would say it was the first Roman church council, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Roman in front of it, um, because actually there were Persian church councils even before the yeah. Nicaea and the Roman church councils. And so, um, and, and so, and there were, they established creeds that they still use to this day. Um, and, and they were, you know, there, so there, there definitely were those, uh, Ethiopian church had their own councils as well, um, that, that were relative, uh, but they also contextualize it because they were relative to their own issues. I mean, again, we talk about, mm-hmm. about, um, just people we've never heard of and all that kind of stuff. I mean, there are, there were theological controversies that we just don't even hear of. Like we hear about maybe the Gnostic or the, the Aryan controversy in the Roman empire, mm. all that, but there was a whole Sabbath controversy in Ethiopia. That was a massive issue in yeah. the 15th century where they right. were doing literally about whether or not the Sabbath should be celebrated on Saturday or Sunday. And that was like a massive issue that split the country in half. And they had a whole council about it. And again, I just found out about this, like maybe, I don't know, a few years ago. And I was like, I had no, I just didn't know that. And it's just, you know, it's so, Mm. I I think there were creeds and councils in other places, um, but they, they were completely unique to their context and they were Mm. in different ways. Um, You know, another example is like, the last example I give is um, I mentioned in the book, you know, one of my, one of my favorite theologians from the early church was Ephraim the Syrian, who is um, a lamentably unknown uh, name, given mm-hmm. how prolific he was. I mean, he was more prolific in writing than I think any other early Christian theologian, second probably to only John Chrysostom. And, and, but he wrote in Syriac. So that's another reason why, going back to the question of why don't we know these names? Because when they didn't write in either Greek or Latin, uh, yeah. they, they were not, they were not passed down throughout mm. the Western Christendom and their, you know, and so um, that's not, that's really a big part of my ministry, academic ministry, if you will, is just mm-hmm. translating these, these texts and trying to make them more known so that the global body can have yeah. Ephraim. He was a fourth century Syrian theologian who wrote in the Syriac language. And he, and again, you, you know, talk about the racism and the white supremacy. If somebody thought that was too strong of a word, uh, go back and look at European uh, archaeology and papyrology and, and historians who like studied Syriac literature in the 1900s and even early two, 200, uh, even the early 1900s and late 1800s, you will see just blatant racist comments about why basically as some of the were becoming mm-hmm. by European and North American scholars, they would just literally say things as well. These are written by like backwards barbaric Syrians and they're not as refined. They're not as sophisticated as like a, as an Augustine or a John Chrysostom. And therefore they're not even worth really knowing. Mm-hmm. Um, like um, racist stuff that was said. Thankfully, scholarship is starting to change on that issue. Um, but the body of Christ, I mean, that's scholarship. The body of Christ is, is still not really known. So I wanted these to be more known. But um, but Ephraim also, one thing that's interesting is he was also very uh, active in promoting orthodoxy. Uh, and again, saying he was a great example of actually of contextualization, of trying to avoid syncretism. He was very critical of the Zoroastrian and the Babylonian uh, idolatry that was happening in his mm-hmm his native city of, of Edessa or Orhoi, but he also was um, very much avoided the other extreme of extractionism where he very much valued his own culture and mm. even didn't just impute the Roman kind of uh, Ro- like Greco-Roman version of Christianity, but he made it his own and, and in his community. And he did theology in the form of poetry, actually. And that's another reason why his in scholarship in Western scholarship in the modern period, why his literature was disparaged and disrespected because it was po- it was done through poetry and therefore it was seen as less 
or less philosophical or less sophisticated. But again, thankfully, a lot of Western scholarship is starting to change on that and say, actually, uh, especially when you read it in the Syriac, his poetry is like massively complex, Mm -hmm. uh, extremely sophisticated. It's Mm -hmm. just unique to that context. So that's another example of, again, how. Uh, you know, Christians in other parts of the world, they definitely did creeds and they 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 framed orthodoxy and 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 really tried to, um, you know, uh, I guess, we'll organize uh, Christian doctrine and faith and practice. But again, they did it in their own mm-hmm. in their own ways and in their right. own uh, context. Yeah. 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 Oh, Vince. This is this is so fascinating, and like I feel like we could keep like we could keep going, going because it's kind of like what do, like what do we do with all of this? So like this kind of reframing and the way you've so helpfully kind of helped us to see all sorts of categories and all different kind of things that we've assumed historically, you know, in terms of our understanding of the church. How do we how do we talk about the history of Christianity um, or historical Christianity? You know, given all the things that you're discovering, and even as you say, discovering like. A few years ago, like, how do you, where do we go from here? Like, how do we, how do we talk about it? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I I would say, um, you know, uh, maybe just a few uh, thoughts off the top of the head, like in terms of practical uh, steps forward is um, I think as much as people can, like, um, really try to learn and and connect with um, the again the non-Western uh, mm, like wow. early church names and figures and that's I mean you know in the book multitude of all peoples like you can you know you can read that it's not too long and uh, it's just kind of an introduction to a lot of these people and mm-hmm. uh, and that can be another way and just try to learn mm. so that again so that we can understand that yeah. has always been uh, global and then I would say also um, you know uh, yeah and then I think more on how we can like apply that in our practical life as Christians today is just as Christians have always been global and always found ways to, to own the the faith in their own way that we need to find ways to, um, to practically encourage that same kind of behavior mm-hmm. today. because right. today there is much, there's, it's still, I, I, I say, and I don't use this lightly. It is a gospel crisis in the world that going back to the beginning of our conversation the, the dynamics that I dealt with growing up where people felt people feel like um, becoming a Christian is tantamount to rejecting my own people and my ways and my culture. And it's tantamount to a cultural conversion, not just a spiritual conversion, but I have, yeah. to, I have to embrace somebody else's culture and yeah. reject my own. Mm-hmm. That is a extremely prominent crisis. I would say it's the number one reason why people who are not Christians reject the gospel. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that I would say the number one reason why people around the world uh, choose not to be a Christian is because they see Christianity as an extension of Western white identity, because most people in the world are not Western, are not white. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and, and most of them who are not Christians see Christianity as a Western white thing. Yeah. So it's the biggest it's the biggest reason why people don't become Christians. So I think it's so important that we. Uh, that we learn this history and and start to um, uh, both the ancient history, but also to be aware of 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 of, of gospel movements among non-Western people today, mm-hmm. uh, so we can support that, and especially to encourage those who are really trying to find ways to not just kind of not just kind of uh, embrace a Westernized, Americanized version. Mm-hmm. Of- but really to make it their own and really say, no, we're going to follow Jesus according to our own uh, culture and own systems and not just kind of, and again, that doesn't mean again, that we're rejecting uh, Western Christianity or that we, or that it's bad or that there's not dialogue or, and reconciliation. But again, that as going back to earlier, that's the way towards unity and that's mm-hmm. the way towards reconciliation is to mm-hmm. live in a day and age where we really need to give greater honor to the parts of the body that have lacked it. Yeah. And, and I think that the last thing I'll say is we need to, um, also be looking at and acknowledging and educating others around us on ways in which we are still um, sending the message that Christianity is the white man's religion. We know it's not, we know that it's for all people, but the Mm. the truth is that we as Christians, we send that message um, in so many ways. I have a, a, you know, a a student at my, my my other seminar work at the Meacham School, I'm a note. Um, He's a black pastor in central Illinois. He has a, you know, all black congregation and they have a historic building uh, where there's a stained glass window picture of, of, of a white Jesus that looks Scandinavian. Um, and again, these are, we know, these are, these images yeah. are everywhere, yeah. all everywhere. over the world. Uh, yeah. To the point that we, if we see that, we don't even think that's weird, right? Yeah. If we saw a dreadlock Jesus or an Asian looking Jesus, then people around the world, Christian or not Christian, would think that's weird, right? Yeah. Um, so, but this this pastor, a uh, friend of mine, he, uh, they literally raised money 
to in order to like change that window uh, and to, you know, they had to cover it up and now they're working on changing it uh, because that image of a white, blonde hair, blue eyed Jesus is extremely traumatizing to um, African-American and many other people. Mm. That image was has been used for to justify slavery, uh, the genocide of indigenous peoples, the trail, yeah. the you know, mission schools uh, in North and South America, um, segregation and and even now mass incarceration. So. Uh, so he he realized that by having this window up in his church, that is sending the me- that we're su- we're actively supporting a message uh, that says that that Christianity is a white man's religion, and so we have to put we have to put <laughs> put a lot of effort uh, yeah. into changing this. But I think that's just a great yeah. micro- what all of us have to do that we yeah. all put effort into acknowledging the uh, ways in which, and again, a lot of times it's going to be uh, in more indirect ways than direct. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, but but I think that's that's some of the things that we really need to do. So good. Oh, Vince, it's been so good to talk to you. Thank you mm-hmm. for your thanks for your time and thanks for kind of busting open all sorts of categories, as yeah. always, which is just always good. The Region Podcast is great at busting categories. So we've just, you know, this is this is this is our this is our usual custom. So you thanks for being in a long line of category busters mm-hmm. for us. It's it's uh it's great. We're really grateful for your time. Thanks for so much for being with us. Oh no, thank you. Yeah, anytime. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a blessing. <laughs> Good to be with you. Thanks for listening to the Regent College Podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To discover more about Regent College, its upcoming events, conferences, courses, and more content like this, visit rgnt.net. That is rgnt.net.